Many of you know that back in May, I led a trip to the Holy Land. David May, who teaches New Testament, and I were the leaders, and we took about 20 pilgrims in all, including two folks from the congregation besides myself. And we do this probably every two years or so, so if it's been on your bucket list, you just make a note of that. The itinerary is fairly standard when you go to the Holy Land. You don't go in this order, but you at least visit these sites, and that is Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, and Nazareth, where he grew up, and of course, Jerusalem, where he was crucified and raised from the dead. But there are other sites and lots of things to do, and one of those sites is called Banyas. It's not a household name, Banyas. Nowadays, it not only has remains of an ancient village where an, an archaeological dig takes place, but there's this beautiful spring-fed river that flows through there, and there's a nature walk among the trees, and when you get out there, people open their Bible and have a devotional. It's also a site where at one point, and there are still remains, of statues of the Greek god Pan, but by the time of Jesus... Banyas had been renamed Caesarea Philippi, which is where this story takes place. And maybe the setting is supposed to say, well, in the face of these Greek gods, who do you say that I am? But more likely, it's in the face of Rome's emperors that Jesus asks the question. You know, this place is named after one of the Caesars, and it was always honoring these emperors who pretty much claimed to be deities themselves and required the people of the empire to bow and pay homage. And it's in that context that Jesus gives this little quiz. I always think of it as a quiz. I picture him saying, okay, it's a pop quiz. Take out a piece of papyrus and number one to two. And they do, and he says, first question, who do people say that I am? And they jot down, you know, some John the Baptist and others scratch their head. Oh, gosh, I don't know, Elijah, Jeremiah. They, they fill out their piece of paper, papyrus. And then he says, second question, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter can't help himself. He can't jot down anything. He says, ooh, 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 ooh. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Which, of course, is the correct answer. And for that answer, Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. And the church is commissioned to do the work of binding and loosing. Whatever the church binds on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever the church looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. Which, yeah, I know, are very foreign words to us. But in the first century, every good Jew would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. The work of binding and loosing is the work of interpreting Scripture. Binding means that whatever the teaching is, is still applicable to the present moment, and loosing is an acknowledgement that, well, this, this does not apply to us in this moment. It's the hard work of interpretation. In Jewish understanding of the law, there is Haggadah, what it says, and there is Halakha, what it means, how you're supposed to live. And it's in that second category that they had to decide, what, what do you think? Is this, is this binding or is it not? And this, as you probably know, 
and the Tri-C's could testify is very hard work. When we were in Israel, David and I were the leaders of the trip, but the law requires that you have an Israeli guide. So we had Jeremy, who was a delightful person, but let's just say his views on the Bible were a little different. At one point, somebody in the group asked a question of me, and I said, I started with my favorite phrase when it comes to anything biblical or theological, I said, well, it's complicated, and then I dove into it. But I could see Jeremy in the back with his arms crossed, mouthing, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. Well, actually it is. Sorry, Jeremy, but it is. He proved it over and over. I mean, even last week we read a passage in Exodus where God hears the cries of the Israelites who are in bondage in Egypt, and God is going to deliver them out of that. Well, so far so good, except... As the narrative puts it, they're going to go into a land that belongs to somebody else and slaughter them. I, I sort of find that objectionable. Don't you? It is incredibly hard work. In part, because times change. A friend of mine a few years ago, I don't know if any of you read it, Mark Twain's autobiography. Mark Twain's autobiography was written, and he stipulated that you had to wait 100 years to publish it. So it didn't come out until 100 years later, just a few years ago now. My friend was reading it. He said, Twain refers to the Morris Affair. You know the Morris Affair? No, we don't know the Morris Affair. And Twain's point was, well, it wasn't an affair. It was a... a a brouhaha, I suppose you could say. Somebody went to visit the president at the White House and was turned away, and it became a scandal. It was called the Morris Affair. And the reason Twain brings it up is to say, a hundred years from now when you're reading this, you'll have no clue what I'm talking about. In a way, that's true of the Bible. The Bible doesn't change, but the world does. And what interpretation has to keep doing is trying to figure out over and over. Now, this is not, this is not one of those postmodern build your own Bible like you build your own teddy bear at those stores. It's the work of the village. It's the work of the church. It's the church's mission to keep interpreting Scripture, to wrestle with it. So I thought we might try it with a few passages in Matthew's gospel. We'll start with an easy one, work up to the harder ones. In chapter 17, Jesus and Peter are having a little discussion. There's another pop quiz of sorts about paying temple tax. And eventually, Jesus says to Peter, tell you what, I'll settle it like this. You go down to the sea and fish. And when you catch a fish, open its mouth. I'm not making this up. And you will find a coin in it that will pay the tax for both of us. That's in the Bible. I can't imagine that's binding anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's not like temple tax is all that relevant to us. It's not binding. So if you go out tonight and there's fish on the menu, just order it. Don't worry. There's no good coins in its mouth. You'll be fine. It's not binding. But see, it gets a little trickier. In chapter 12... Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, 
and the disciples are hungry and they pluck some grain off and you know it's kind of like first century version of grabbing a granola bar on the way to work except it's the Sabbath and and the rabbis had this discussion this debate about can you pluck grain if you're hungry on the Sabbath and there were these two schools of thought you've heard me mention them before Shammai and Hillel and one of them said no you, you really shouldn't do that and the other said if you're hungry it's okay this one's tricky. Christians, by and large, would say we're not under the law. We don't have to keep Sabbath. We don't have to, but there's so much that's been written about the wisdom of Sabbath rest. So maybe there's wisdom there. Maybe it's not binding, but it's, it's calling. It's beckoning. Eventually, though, in Matthew's gospel, you come to the hardest one. I think it's the hardest one. Jesus has an encounter with a Gentile woman. Actually, that's not even, doesn't even do justice to it. She doesn't accost him, but she confronts him. She's bold, and she says, Lord, my daughter is in serious trouble. Health issues, please come and help her. And Jesus says not a word. That'll get you an F in pastoral care classes. And the disciples, they don't look so good. They say, Lord, send her away. She's a pain. But she will not be turned away. See, in, the, in Matthew's gospel, from the very beginning, Jesus says, go only to the Jews. Go only to the Jews. That is my mission, only to the Jews. But this woman says, Lord, help me and Jesus eventually says, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And the woman says, but even dogs get crumbs. And she wins the debate. Jesus, from that point on, expands his mission beyond Jews. What do you make of that? Most of us are not terribly concerned with Jewish-Gentile tensions, although maybe we should be, given what happens in the Middle East and how much it affects so much of this world. But so many readings of Scripture that are harmful have come from reading Scripture. The happenings in Charlottesville KKK and the neo-Nazi and the white supremacist, they don't so much do it anymore, and yet in their literature, they're still quoting Bible. Still quoting Bible. It, it, they have, you know you can make the Bible say anything, right? It's like a Ouija board. You know, when I was a kid, we had one. Does this girl like me? Oh, it says yes. You can make it say anything. And people do it with the Bible. But to read scripture and to come away with an interpretation of exclusivism, it was on the basis of that that millions of Jews and gays and unclean people were burned whole using Bible. So how does the church do the hard work of binding and loosing? How do you decide well, we're given a clue later in Matthew's gospel. 
thank God. Jesus has a religious debate with the Sadducees. They go away. The Pharisees come. There's a religious debate again, and it's about the great commandments. What are the great commandments? And, and you know, Jesus says, love of God and neighbor. Except the way it's worded in Matthew's gospel, you cannot separate the two. Love of God and love of neighbor, there's not even an and in between. It's just they are the same. In other words, you cannot have an interpretation of Scripture that is not loving toward both God and neighbor. One of my favorite stories out of Judaism and its lore and the Talmud is about the time when an argument between these two camps, Hillel and Shammai, was settled by the very voice of God. It's a great tradition. They were always debating things, Hillel and Shammai, one more conservative, one more progressive, and there was this time in which they came together and they said, this is the teaching, and the other said, no, this is the teaching, and then the voice of God spoke and said, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai are both correct, but the school of Hillel is preferred. And they looked at each other and said, well, how, how is that possible? How can this one be right and this one be right and this is the preferred one? And the voice of God said, because the school of Hillel was considerate of the other position and spoke with kindness and humility. Isn't that something? It turns out that the interpretation of Scripture that God prefers is kindness, 